Hey, everyone. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled today to be sitting down with Mr. Jeff Snyder. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Robert. I'm excited to get into this stuff. As am I. Um, you know, I discovered your work on the Eurodollar University, which is a long form podcast series on macro voices, where you lay out you know, the nitty gritty of the Euro dollar system, how it functions, how it emerged, um, and how it's changed over time. And so I have to, first of all, thank you for that, because, you know, I knew of the Euro dollar system before your work, but I didn't realize just how big and complicated and important it is. Um, and I, I think I listened to that, that Macro Voices series three times. So really appreciate that. Yeah, I think it's 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 amazing, isn't it, Robert? Because you know, you think about something like LIBOR, for example. Everybody, I think most people have heard of LIBOR, but they don't realize what it actually refers to. It's some kind of money rate. There's U.S. dollar markets, and it's really the the basic euro dollar rate. And it just it's one place where you can begin to walk down the rabbit hole into okay, what's really going on out there? What does this euro dollar refer to? What does it actually? Yes, mean? yeah. As we were just talking offline. A lot of the difficulty in this space is how obfuscated things are. You know, there's a lot of technical jargon, a lot of different terms, as you were even saying, different macro thinkers use their own unique terms. So there's a lot of pieces to put together um, for the outside listener. So with that in mind, it's I know we're going to get complicated and in the weeds and all that, but I want to start very simply, actually, which this, you know, the namesake of this show, what is money? Uh, I've named it that to try and encourage people to be more inquisitive and curious about the fundamental nature of money. And to satisfy my own curiosity, I would like to ask you, uh, a mind that I respect a great deal, that question, what is money? Well, before I I think that's a terrific place to start because, you know, in the 21st century, especially as we move farther and further away from actual money, physical commodity money, and get into heading towards what I hope is, you know, a more digital future. It's a question I don't think many people answer or even think to themselves about. It's just, I got a couple pieces of paper in my pocket that have stamped on it, something from the government, that's money. Um, I go to the grocery store, I tap my phone or, you know, I tap my credit card to the machine. I don't know what money is. It's something happens and I walk out of the grocery store with some goods and, I don't think enough people really stop and think about what it actually is. And what it is not is money is not wealth. And that's another thing I think we get get hung up on too, is that we talk about people who have money, they must be, you must be wealthy. And that's, that's, that's true in a sense, but that's not really what money's purpose is. You know, we talk about the three, the three, uh, the three main functions of money, which are store value is one, but I think the other two functions are more important, which are, medium of exchange, as well as unit of account. And when you think about them, especially those two functions, what you're really talking about is money is a tool. It's a tool of a very highly specialized modern economy uses to conduct commerce most efficiently, flexibly, and and, and, uh, intuitively as possible. Hmm. So in a really basic level, money is supposed to be secondary to the real economy and it's a tool that allows the real economy commerce and the real economy to take place because it intermediates hmm. it intermediates between competing interests and as we're going to see with the euro dollar system it intermediates between often very different systems 
So that's mm. how it is a tool. But let's we always got to keep in mind, money isn't wealth. It's a tool. When you look at it from that perspective, then I think some of these other things start to fall into line about you know how far we've gone from right, right. <laughs> you know, what they're supposed to be doing. Right. No, that's a great, great intro. I, I want to ask the follow-up question then just to distinguish between the two then. What is wealth? Wealth, you know, in a very capitalist traditional sense is a productive enterprise that is sustainable. Mm. It's not, it's, you know, it's not piles of stacks of Federal Reserve note papers in the mm. bank. It's wealth is in economic terms. I mean, small economic terms. Mm -hmm. It's the sustainable productive capacity to combine labor and capital and all these other secret things that, you know, Adam Smith's invisible hand that combine together that when you add all these things up to get all, all these things up, you have a functioning economy that raises the living standards of everybody else. So wealth mm. is the productive capacity in a, in a very aggregate sense, wealth is the productive capacity of the system and on an individual level or the individual productive capacities. Got it. Okay. So that's interesting. Defining wealth as the productive capacity, does that include capital too? The things that have already been absolutely. produced? Yep. You put that? Yep. Okay. Absolutely. So then because is it- it's, it's like a productive enterprise is going to be generating capital, which is right. then used to combine all of the factors of production into the- secret sauce of capitalism. Gotcha. So it's the capacity to produce capital plus the capital produced is wealth. And right. then is it is it proper to call money a call option on that wealth in a way? Like if you're holding money, you get an option on that? In a way, yeah. And I think if you think of more along the lines of store value, that's mm -hmm. what it's for, right? I mean, you get paid for your labor in currency and you yeah. want that currency to be able to be you be of use whenever you want it to be of use. You know, if you get paid on a Friday, but you don't go to the grocery store for a couple of weeks, the last thing you want is an unstable currency. So that right. two weeks later, you're, you're worried about whether or not you have the same that you thought when you traded your labor for this paper. Right. So it, yes, in a sense that, you know, for labor, that is their wealth contribution to the real economy. And if they're trading their labor for paper tokens, that's exactly what it is. It's it's an option on future expenses, the ability to, to trade your labor one day for goods and services that you're going to require some other day. Right. Okay. That's a, that's a good way to look at it. So kind of a social contract through time in a way, right? You sacrifice your time that's, today and redeem it later. Absolutely. And that's why stability was historically the most important aspect of any monetary system. Because, mm. you know, unstable period, you know, Weimar Germany is a perfect example. It's an extreme example, but it's a perfect mm. example where, you know, people would get rushed to get paid in the morning, take their wheelbarrow to the grocery store because the price of whatever goods they were going to buy had, had probably changed by the afternoon. That's an right, right. you know, extreme yeah. example, but that's what we're trying to do is you know, how do we price labor? How do we price factors of production? How do we price all of these things when we don't, you know, they don't happen at the same time. There's a temporal aspect to this. Mm. Currency is that medium to translate through time, hopefully in, a, in the most stable and efficient fashion. Again, it's a tool for commerce to take place because of these, you know, vagaries of human existence. Right. Okay. That's great. Okay. So that, I think that segues us well um, into the path I want to walk down with you today. And so we're going to try to keep it high level. We're going to cover a lot of history though. Um, so, you know, to the point of stability, that is 
stability of purchasing power specifically, that is one of the purposes of the central bank, right? Um, oh, yeah. Ostensibly, <laughs> they, they so. at least. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's arguable, I guess. Debatable. Yes. <laughs> one of the uh, ostensible uh, purposes that they proclaim for themselves, I think. I'll, I'll let you speak yeah. this in. Maybe we just start there. I, I wanted to start with there have been many iterations of the central bank historically. The one that is dominant in the world today and dominant in the U.S. is the Federal Reserve. Maybe we could just start there. Why was the Federal Reserve established? What were its ostensible aims? And if you want to speak to maybe its actual purposes, if they are different in any way, <laughs> uh, would love to hear that as well. And then we'll take we'll start there on our path, kind of working our way towards the great financial crisis of 2008. Yeah, that's a good place to start because, you know, again, talking about stability, what is money? You know, the Federal Reserve has gone through its own evolutions too, as money has, as we'll see. And its original purpose was stability, as, as, Mm -hmm. as you actually said, but it wasn't price stability so much as elasticity. And, you know, I think everybody knows, or at least the shorthand about the 1907, the panic of 1907, how J.P. Morgan supposedly stepped in at the last minute and supplied currency to the system and and kept the uh, U.S. economy from falling off into the depressions that it had had frequently been forced into over the latter part of the 19th century. So the idea was we don't want to be left to J.P. Morgan to throw in some elastic currency Whenever we get into times of crisis, mm. let's have a European style central bank operating on the principles espoused by Walter Badgett, you know, the famed uh, Bank of England governor, mm. who said, you know, lend freely at high rates on good collateral during times of crisis. Mm. So initially, stability was elasticity of currency. And you can understand if you know anything about the history, you understand why that was, because especially in the latter half of the 19th century, with these modern depressions that showed up out of you know, seemingly nowhere, people really didn't know what these depressions were. There was a very clear correlation between lack of money, deflation, and depression. So mm-hmm. stability came to be defined originally as how do we keep the system flush with cash, elasticity, so that we can avoid the worst case depressions through deflation. So stability was more about elasticity and, and the downside. And that was the Fed's original purpose. And it wasn't just about, you know, these temporary bank crises that popped up, there was also seasonality to it. The U.S. experienced massive monetary flows from New York and from the West Coast into the interior because of its agricultural background and mm. trade and all these other things. So the Federal Reserve was really, its first purpose was, let's keep the currency system floating and stable. We're not really worried about prices. We're just worried about deflation and preventing the worst case scenarios. That was the original Fed, Fed purpose, which... You get to the next step, go through the 20s to the 30s. Obviously, it didn't work out very well because we ended up in 1929 with some of the worst deflationary currency in human history. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, so a couple of terms that I want to parse out and get your definition on. First being elasticity itself. So this is a term that's thrown around a lot in these circles, but I don't think many people understand it. Could you just speak to the definition of monetary elasticity and its relationship to economic stability? Elasticity is the, is the idea that the monetary system should never be completely fixed or completely uh, rigid. 
In other words, the economy is a dynamic place and all the time there are competing uses or the competing demands for currency or competing demands for money, mm-hmm. not all of which are good ideas. So there's always this, you know, how do we get, how do we balance elasticity? Elasticity is really about making sure that that whatever, you know, whoever's in demand for money has the ability to source currency because lack of currency, this deflationary condition is actually a really painful impediment to economic growth and progress. So elasticity is about matching money demand, legitimate money demand, which, you know, that's a that's sort of a bad term to use, but for lack of a better term, legitimate money demand, which could increase or decrease with legitimate money supply, which should increase or decrease depending upon demand. So that we balance these two things out in order to avoid the situation where there's too little money flowing through the economy, which creates this deflationary wave and then depression and all those bad things that come about after it. So elasticity is really about maintaining a good balance between supply and demand. Of course, that makes it sound really easy mm-hmm. when, in fact, in practice, it's incredibly difficult and, 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 and uh, almost impossible. Right. OK, so I want to ask you more about that. But first, I'll have you define deflation as well. So are you specifically talking about price deflation? Uh, what is this? What is this? You know, uh, evil or problem of deflation we're trying to avoid through elasticity? Yeah, deflation is essentially where there's too little money flowing through the economy, which creates an imbalance in prices, instability in prices. It can work out in financial markets too, but in economic prices, where essentially because money becomes too too dear, there's not enough of it. Uh, real economic participants will value money more than they value the production of, you know, as we said before, real wealth, the production of actual goods and services because there's a shortage of funds. And what that does is at some point like the 19, early 1930s, if depression is severe enough or the deflation is severe enough, prices have to adjust to the point where actual formerly productive businesses are undercutting their own productive capacity because money has become so expensive or so in, in such short supply, it doesn't make sense to actually produce goods and services. Hmm. And that's when you get into uh, widespread unemployment, which is, as John Maynard Keynes pointed out in, ni- in the 1920s, is the worst of all economic evils. Deflation is much more worse than inflation, largely because deflation is paid for in the form of widespread unemployment. Labor is what, what, labor is what end up... Uh, experiencing the worst parts of deflation. So it's the productive enterprises shuttering their workforces due to deflation? Is that the relationship here? Yeah, because prices fall below the cost of production. Interesting. Okay. So all right, I have another because this is kind of the crux of a divide between the Keynesian and Austrian school of economics, I think. Yeah. Um, so one thing I'd like I guess to go a little bit deeper on deflation first, you know, I had Jeff Booth on the show. I don't know if you're familiar with his book, The Price of Tomorrow. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, he's making the argument that the entire purpose of the economic system is to create price deflation, actually, right? This would be people trading with one another to solve problems more intelligently, Absolutely. cheaply, quickly, that you would expect. The price of chairs, for instance, as we get smarter at making them, that should decline yep. over time. That's that capitalism's be- secret, right? Exactly. Mass yes. production, lower the unit cost of production to the point yes. that it's available to a widespread marketplace. 
Yes. To me, I know that's deflation because its price has fallen, but it's not monetary deflation. That's productive okay. deflation. Okay. For, I, I think the most, the best example, the most intuitive example to most people is technology, right? Because mm-hmm. you know you don't have to go back that far. What a decent computer used to cost you an arm and a leg, where nowadays they give them away for free almost. You know, you right. know the smartphones, for example, used to yes. used to cost a lot. Nowadays, you just sign up for a, a wireless plan, and they're giving them to you. That's productive deflation, which is the secret behind capitalism's combining uh, efficient combining of fact, the factors of production, along with sufficient money to make it all work. Right. So we do have to distinguish between that productive deflation, which is good, and this monetary deflation, which historically speaking is universally bad. Okay, there we go. So that helps clarify the monetary deflation component. What is causing that? What is, so this would be a shrinkage of the money supply, I take it, right? So reduction of cash and credit flowing through the market. So that clearly, that was a problem, uh, I guess, at least ostensibly, probably actually, perhaps actually, prior to the implementation of the central bank. So maybe you could describe how that was occurring then. It's always a problem. It's always okay. been a problem. It's it's really how do we deal with it? And you're right. It, it's not so much that there's a shortage necessarily of supply as much as usually redistribution. Okay. When we're talking about economics, it's usually about flow, how things yeah. move around because yes. nothing stands still. Right. And then, you know, as I mentioned before, the United the early primitive uh, economy in the United States had massive seasonal flows because of its agrarian nature, where money right. would flow out of the interior to buy products after after uh, you know products were after, after the, the, the uh, crops and yeah exactly, yeah. and then it would flow back in once the once those harvests were sold to the to the uh, to the coast essentially, and the the whole point of the banking system was to to the private banking system, especially in between the Second Bank of the United States and the Federal Reserve was to try to manage these flows so that it doesn't become a massive problem. Of course, it did. And that's why you always see bank panics happening in the fall, because that's when money doesn't flow or that's when money flows are the heaviest. And it leaves Mm -hmm. a lot of places uh, outside of that flow that can turn into bigger problems. So it's always it's really about, you know, we talk about money supply, but it's in a lot of ways, it's more about distribution because money tends to pool and then we have to try to get it to not pool. How do we get it out of certain hands and moving around the rest of the place that it's needed. And that's that's kind of what the central bank was supposed to be for, was to say, okay, you know, private banks in the East were hoarding cash because they, you know, became risk averse, yeah. usually for legitimate reasons. But then that causes all sorts of deflationary problems elsewhere. So if the if the Eastern banks weren't going to weren't going to repatriate money back into the interior, let's have a system in place that can supply some form of currency in lieu of this private redistribution. And that was the Walter Badgett uh, theory of central banking, which is essentially make sure there are no dry spots in the economy through um, central bank public activities. Right. Okay. So that somewhat makes sense. I do want to parse apart a little bit more here. The Because in my mind, it seems to be that wouldn't the natural interest rate mediate those flows? Like, How does it become problematic is what I'm trying to get at. So if you have a supply of loanable funds or money and you have demand for it, doesn't the interest rate just act as a price mechanism that mediates the flows already? Why do we need an institution overlaid on top of that? And you would think that's the case, right? I mean, that was Newt Wixell's contribution, the natural rate of interest, which is supposed to move around and induce that kind of a flow, right? Mm-hmm. If money became tight in one area, 
demand for money, which is supposed to be, you know, relatively unchanged, mm-hmm. would see the price of money go up. And therefore, that would make it equitable or profitable for those who have money to then redistribute in those places at, at much higher at much higher rates. And it seems like it should work really, really well and so almost elegantly. Yeah. It just doesn't because there are any number of frictions that are get introduced into the system, including the fact that at times, uh, especially the way the banking system was worked under convertibility, which was periods when real base money like gold coin would be hoarded by the public, mm-hmm. it wouldn't matter if banks wanted to take advantage of high rates of interest. They simply could not. And even though some rates of interest got to be really high, a lot of banks simply said, we're not going to redistribute money at any price because it's just too risky. And I think where Newt Wixell really kind of left it too unsophisticated was in the fact that you know, it's a risk-adjusted price of everything. And if you mm. think risk is through the roof, it won't really matter what the price of money is. You're going to hoard money anyway. That was certainly the case of the public who were converting, you know, paper deposits or, uh, you know, derivative deposits for real money or even just cash, which simply deprived the banking system of supply to be able to do exactly what we're saying. Mm. So I'm not, you know, I'm not making the argument that we necessarily need a central bank to manage this. Yeah. I think yeah. that in a lot of ways, the the second half of the 19th century managed itself pretty elegantly. Mm. There were all sorts of clearing houses and ad hoc associations that performed the role of central. I mean, clearing house debt certificates in Chicago, for example, during the panic of 1893, as well as the panic of 1907, kept Chicago largely insulated from problems that monetary problems that were arising in New York. But to your point, you would think that the interest rate would be a simple enough, elegant mechanism to just to to, uh, to govern all of these flows. And historically speaking, it's much more complicated. Hmm. That's really interesting uh, because it, it's hard. It's difficult for me to understand that argument because it seems like, OK, even if there was collusion to hoard all the money, right, and the market rate of interest is just exploding, you're still creating this incentive for the colluding parties to want to defect, right? When the interest rate gets to 100% or whatever the number is, uh, it seems like the price would break that that hoarding behavior. But um, I don't know. I, well, I, you know, like there's a, there's a ceiling on prices people can pay too. I mean, the interest rate's never going to go to 100% because that's not a realistic number. And so there's there's also a friction in that respect that there's mm. there's a limitation of what people can pay for the price of money. Because if you're paying 100% interest rate for the price of money, you're probably going to be out of business. You're not right. going to be able to survive anyway. So it's not a realistic level of price appreciation. So that's sort of a friction. There's there's a ceiling that the monetary system can or the economic system mm-hmm. can pay in terms of price of money. And, you know, what that ceiling is, you know, that's kind of what Newt, Newt Wixell was getting into was right. let's try, you know, let's try to figure out where is the, where are those pain points and make sure that we don't ever reach them. Understood. Okay. So, all right. So we'll leave, leave that one alone. That That's, there's a lot there. We could probably talk about it for days. So yeah, we, no, we, it's, we, it's, it's even more complicated still. <laughs> we historically then have decided or depended upon currency elasticity to overcome this uh this inferiority of the natural interest rate to mediate flows is that correct that's sort of the idea and again okay. it's you know it's it's an ideal yes it's not yes. necessarily a workable theory the idea is that we if we have you know socratic enlightened philosopher technocratic geniuses who could you could you know supported by the government could stand there and say 
oh, this is the ideal time to supply currency over here because it's right. getting dry, using some kind of signal to do that. The, that was the that was that was the, uh, the the original intent behind the Fed, which was essentially look, the 19th century was great, but it was really really messy. Yeah, it was really bad in certain times. You know, the Long Depression, the 1893 Depression, kind of we kind of lucked out with the 1907 Depression, and so there's something not right here. It's you know there's all right. these frictions, there's all these monetary problems, there's all these monetary. Uh, you know, lack of distribution, the tendency to hoard emotion. That was one of the things that some of the uh, that was brought up time and time again, debating between the Aldrich plan and the, and the early Federal Reserve was, you know, at some point, it, it doesn't matter about the price of money because people come some become so emotional right. that money doesn't negotiate anyway. So that was, yeah, let's 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 create a public entity that can that's dispassionate, scientific technocratic that can stand apart from the monetaries that doesn't have a real skin in the game, right? It's not JP Morgan looking to, the, to feather his own bed. It's mm-hmm. a public institution that's going to do all these other things that can monitor because the monetary system, as good as it was, it has a lot of inherent flaws in it. And we think we think we can solve some of those problems, or at least the worst kinds of problems by elasticity. Okay. That makes sense, uh, at least the idea of it. So what we're pointing out here is a failure of capitalism in the market for money, right? We're saying that the natural price discovery of money is insufficient to uh, make flow, make adequate flows. Is that correct? I think that's too harsh. I think it's okay. not a failure. So it's an inherent flaw. And I don't think it's an inherent flaw in capitalism. I think it's an inherent flaw in humanity. I think okay. it's just, I mean, we are not angels. We can't create right, the perfect right, right, system. Right. And we're talking about incredibly, incredibly dynamic and complex places that we're kind of doing the best we can. And I think a lot of ways it is the best we can do. Okay. I'm not talking about central banks. I'm talking about a more of a free market capitalist system. Mm. I think that's the best. And recognizing that it's messy, that there's downsides to it, it's mm-hmm. it's it's painful at times. It's like you know Winston Churchill said of democracy: it's the worst form of economic system, <laughs> except all others that have been tried. Right? It's gotcha. It's not perfect, but it works when it's allowed to work. You're talking about capitalism specifically. Yes, the, the okay. free market, the, pro, the information supply of, of you know that's again money is a tool. Yes, helps to supply information about what's going on, what needs to be done, and all sorts of other things with it. Right, but there is there's an inherent flaw right here in the purely capitalistic form of money, which would be no central bank, right? Not just pure natural interest rate. So is this flaw something that's unique to the market for money that we don't have in other markets? Or is it I don't think so. I, you know, there's all sorts of I mean, just the regular commercial marketplaces, there's all sorts of frictions and balances and, and uh, flaws and anything else that you I mean. Any number of examples. Just yeah. talk about trade, for example. I mean, it's 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 a completely difficult. Uh, I wouldn't say inherently flawed space. So, you know, it's not a failure, but it's it's one of those problems that it takes some effort to work around. And right. taking some effort means it's not fluid and efficient, which causes frictions and all sorts of other problems. So, gotcha. I think it's it's an again. I think it's not a flaw of capitalism so much as as it is a flaw in people. And that's. Okay. <laughs> it's not I'm not taking a really dim view of humanity here. I just think it's it's kind of the way it is. Yes. Okay. No, I 
I agree with you that you know we clearly are flawed and we have all kinds of mistakes and errors and whatnot. But the way I view the market is a it's a forum that's a free exchange is actually sorting out those errors and biases, right? And it's like the market is sort of refereeing what's valuable, what's not, and it's doing this through price discovery. And so we 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 accept yeah, that truth it, in every market in the world. It seems. <laughs> I, I mean. Now you're getting into the efficient market hypothesis, which is that the market, look, I believe the market is the best way to do that, yes. but it's not a perfect way to do that. And of it course. will make mistakes. It will, it will create all sorts of problems that if left unchallenged or unchecked can snowball into much bigger problems. And that's where elasticity comes in. Well, this, okay. So this is a tough one for me. This is sticky because, okay, you have, Price discovery or the natural market process, whether it's efficient or not, I agree it's not perfectly efficient, right? Because information, it's all about mapping current activity to market data, right? And it's what system does that best. I think arguably the free market does do that best. That does not mean it's perfect, though. There's still right. a lot of, you know, uh, what do they say? It's messy where the sausage is made, right? Like there's errors and all these things, but the market is also the thing that clears those errors. So my, here's the deal with elastic currency. The problem that I can't get over in my mind is there's no willing counterparty to an elastic currency. Like given the choice of any human on earth, any rational market actor, like, do you want a currency that its supply cannot be changed? Or do you want a, a currency whose supply can arbitrarily be changed by this group of guys over here based on what needs they see in the marketplace? So it an elastic currency presupposes coercion, like it's built into it. And this is something I can't get over. It's like, we're, we're saying there's a failure in capitalism. This. So we're putting this public institution on top of it. Yeah, but I'm, I'm having a hard time reconciling that with my free. Market I think that's view. too. Your definitions are too strict. You're you're you're, you're too. Um, it's unrealistic. You're you're not, you're sort of thinking about things in a theoretical sense, and I, I think everybody would agree with you in a theoretical sense. The reason we accept an elastic currency, and just just let's, to be clear here, I don't like the central bank model at oh, all. I I think I central yeah. banks are agents of destruction and idiocy and incompetence, as we'll get into. Yeah. But I understand why their original purpose, and we are talking about their original purpose. We are not talking about the purposes of central banks in the last half century, which right, is very different right, right, than what right. we're talking about. Yes. So to get back, you know, elastic currency, elastic currency is sort of like um, insurance against inelastic currency. And inelastic currency, people, whether they know it or not, accept is a much worse proposition than elastic currency. So it's right. sort of a trade-off because everything in economics is a trade-off. We accept an elastic currency because we have seen time and time and time and time again, universally in every kind of economic jurisdiction there is, that an inelastic currency leads to the worst kinds of problems. Hmm. They, I mean, we can, we, can, we can talk about the details of that, but I think the overview is that you know, we don't live in an ideal world, therefore we can't have a perfectly inelastic currency, a fixed supply of currency, because mm. we live in a dynamic situation, dynamic economy, where an inelastic currency just cannot keep up with that sort of situation. And the argument against, argument for inelastic currency, which I'm sure you know, I'm, you know very well, mm. is that you know, look, elastic currency, as you just said, we're depending upon a group of, you know, we, we hope are really smart people to perform that elasticity. 
I don't think that's the only way to create an elastic currency. I think there mm. are other ways to create an elastic currency that doesn't involve central bankers or central banks. Right, right, right. And that's and that's the trade-off I think that people want to see is that a dynamic, you know, how do we, going back to what we first started with, money is a tool. How do we use money most effectively? And I think it's most effective when it's elastic, which matches, you know, the fact that we live in a dynamic world. Right. Okay. So I, I do somewhat agree with you here in that like when we saw free banking in scotland i forget was it 16th 17th century um they had you know some of the currencies banks were issuing their own currencies some of them were elastic where they would increase the supply of currency beyond the reserves you know intermittently over time Mm -hmm. but each one of those banks was effectively staking their own reputation right if they overproduced or they increased elasticity too much and became got in a situation of insolvency, they went under, right? And the capital of that bank was reallocated to more prudent banks. So in that way, I think elasticity could work more of a free market model versus a centrally planned model. Absolutely. Um, but then the, the, the question always is, how does it work? What is the metric that we're using? And it, we don't have to define, I mean, how does the system use it? Uh, how does the system evaluate itself? How right. do we know when currency system-wide is becoming too inelastic. And what does too inelastic mean, right? Right. That's right, the thing. Right. There are no easy answers for any of these. It's not like we can sit and define quantitative rules yes. for exactly what constitutes inelasticity. And the other thing is, again, why elasticity is preferred, is preferable, is that we could say inelasticity today is X, but we know by next week, inelasticity might be something completely different. And that's, you know, that's kind of what Newt Wixel was saying with the natural rate of interest was that that would give us, there is no one natural rate of interest. He was saying there were several there that would give us a sense of general sense of when are we getting into inelastic situation? Is it too, too inelastic and, and things like that. And I think the reality is it's, it's, there's no hard and fast rules we can come up with that says, this this is this is when we need somebody to step in and, and create some currency and introduce it into the marketplace. Right, right. Yeah, it, it's it almost seems to me to be contingent on the aim, right? Because even when we're talking about system wide inelasticity, it's like okay, then is our aim to optimize for system stability, or do we want to optimize for error clearing, which would be more unstable, I guess, but less accumulation. I would say that would be more stable long run. If yeah, we're, more, if we're, again, if we're clearing errors, yeah. Yes, that's, that's more stable long run, but the short run would be more volatile. And that's really what banking is supposed to do. Banking is supposed to be the secret to all of this behind all you know, money as well as economy. Banks are supposed to intermediate, yes. which means they're supposed to look at real economic projects or financial projects and decide yes. this is stupid, this is insane. Oh, this is a really good idea. So I'm going to lend to this one, but not this one. That's right. what banks are supposed to do. Right. And the idea behind elasticity is that we keep banks in business, the good ones that are intermediate, the bad ones are the ones who don't have collateral to pay, to borrow from Walter Badgett Center banks. Right. There's, they're out of business. And we right. want the bad banks to go out of business because they've shown they can't intermediate. Yes. The problem we get into is, you know, banks maybe, not aren't, the, maybe aren't the perfect way to intermediate in money and credit in an economy. And it's, you know, That's, they add their own layer of complications yes. on top of what is supposed to be you know, a direct relationship between money and commerce. Now we have finance in between. Right. That gets even more complicated and more interesting, shall we say. Yes. Yes. And then you, <laughs> yeah, that, that, yes, the political <laughs> aspect is where it gets very complicated. And that, you know, it, 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 I think it introduces right there what most people 
in our position nowadays think is the worst part of it, which is the rent sinking behavior of, of the financial right. system. Yes. And that's really where it comes from, from this privileged position of we're intermediating between money and commerce. And we kind of need that to happen. Yes. But there's that downside that, you know, especially of late, they've taken real advantage of. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. No, all right. That's a great point. I think the original purpose of banks is an excellent point too, that it's effectively matching maturities and credit assessment between savers and borrowers. So it's, it's, it's reducing frictions in the marketplace so that we can fund viable projects. Hey everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. So we have then the Federal Reserve incepted after the 19th century was a little bit messy. We had a number of these issues that you described. Federal Reserve incepted in 1913, I believe. Right. Yeah, they started talking about it in 1908. They came up with something called the Aldrich Plan, which was originally looked a lot like the clearinghouse uh, networks I just talked about. Yeah. They changed a little bit and decided that uh, 1912, they would vote on this Federal Reserve System. Okay, I have to ask. Sorry, they purposely ahead. called the Federal Reserve because they knew they couldn't sell Central Bank or Bank of the United States number three <laughs> to the public. Yeah, it had to. They had to take the marketing into consideration, right? The optics yeah, had to be good. Um, so People I have to were ask a lot you, smarter back then. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask you here if you have any thoughts on the work of G. Edward Griffin and the creature from Jekyll Island about the inception of the Fed. Yeah, there's a lot of that. You know, Paul uh, uh, Paul Warburg, for example, who comes up a lot, not just in that book, but uh, you know, if you read any of the primary source material, you know, yeah. he was uh, J.P. Morgan's agent, and there's there's a lot of self interest in how the system was was set up, and there's certainly a lot of opportunities to take advantage. Again, where does this rent seeking behavior come from? That's yeah. part of it too. Um, but you know, I, it, it's. In one sense, you look at uh, some of the political angles and the actual politicians setting up the Fed. You know, um, think about uh, Simon. Uh, what was his name? Senator Simon Owen Simon from Oklahoma. I can't. I can't think of his name off the offhand. Yeah. Who was actually a banker in Oklahoma during the Panic of eighteen ninety three. Hmm. He was more public interested, and in, um, I think a lot of his work ended up becoming the Federal Reserve. But yeah, there's there's a lot of reasonable questions about how the whole system was set up and. Some of them are, you know, some of them are legitimate questions and others yes. have been just, you know, they've become fodder for conspiracy theories just because it was a complicated situation. Right. Okay. So just so from the outset, 
this ideal institution had some political, some politicization to it that made it a little Absolutely. less than Absolutely. ideal. Um, okay. So how does that then, so it's set out with this aim of uh, kind of re- increasing stability, I guess, reducing the specter of monetary deflation. Right. What then happens going into the 1929 and um, I guess the 10 years after that were, are also pretty important. Absolutely. And what happened, you know, to put to put it in a nutshell, was massive monetary and credit in evolution throughout the late 19 teens and into the 1920s. Some of it, which was necessary because of, you know, we the world went off the gold standard for World War One, And a lot of that gold ended up flowing into the United States. Mm-hmm. At the same time, in 1917 and 1918, the Federal Reserve went crazy with what today we would call quantitative easing, buying up liberty bonds and all sorts of other things like that, mm-hmm. creating bank reserves to help finance the war. So you had officially a monetary expansion from World War One and the need and necessities of that. But really, in the 1920s, what led to the massive monetary imbalances that became the deflationary Great Depression was deposit-based fractional reserve lending. It's, it's that nothing mm. more complicated than that, which today sounds very quaint and uninteresting. But back then, this was a huge, huge deal. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the level of money and cash in, in flowing through the banking system in public hands was essentially fixed for those 20 years in between, while the level of deposits skyrocketed. I mean, just absolutely skyrocketed. You had something like uh, yeah. 16 billion in total deposits around 1919 that ballooned to 45 billion by 1929. It was a wow. massive monetary expansion, but it wasn't money, money. It wasn't yeah. currency. It's credit. It was money. now we're getting into ledger money and deposit yeah. and fractional reserve lending. And then, of course, because all of those po- deposits were given the right to convertibility and the level of actual vault cash hadn't really changed. Yeah. Now you have one dollar of vault cash supporting, say, forty dollars in deposits, whereas right. you had one dollar supporting maybe 10 or 15, 20 years before. And that's just so crazy and balanced that it was a recipe for disaster. Right. So so leverage starts to be injected into the system effectively. Um, and again, you know, the you could say the free market sort of failed here because the banking system, which was supposed to intermediate good ideas and bad ideas. And I know this, we can spend a lot of time on the 1920s, but in one sense, it was, you know, the banking system really failed everybody. They were supposed to intermediate and stop, you know, not do these yeah. ridiculous kinds of uh, activities, especially build up that much monetary leverage in the system. And it was kind of. And then, of course, the Federal Reserve was supposed to be behind all of that saying, well, don't worry about it. We got this covered. We're, <laughs> right. we're an ideal central bank. And it just it was a, a, a one bad idea after another. And it just got to incre- completely unmanageable levels that when the ball started rolling downhill, the snowball started rolling downhill. There was probably no way to stop it. So my thinking here is that in a market system with good flows of information, that when you get to this 40 to one leverage scenario, people would start redeeming, right? It's like, get, give me the gold. I don't want the paper. I don't want the promise. Right. I want the gold. Was redeemability suspended at this time? I and mean, what enabled the leverage to get that high? Everybody was convinced that there was, this was, you know, a new era of prosperity. Therefore mm. risk was low. And again, everything is priced in risk adjusted terms, including mm. money and credit. So if you think risk is low, then, as a bank or an intermediary, you think, well, 
even though that's a really dumb idea, it's probably going to pay off. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to lend money to, over here. I'm going to create deposits to do it because I'm no longer attached to any real monetary system or standard as sort of a byproduct of coming off of the gold standard and everything else after World War One. Everything was just kind of detached and nobody really had any sense of how to how to value and how to ground all of this activity in something tangible that could say, you know, I I know a lot of people at the time were saying this is getting out of control. Yeah. But you know how human, you know, we we tend to rationalize behavior, especially when you know, herd, everybody else in the herd is doing the same thing. Right, right. You get into recency bias and confirmation bias and all sorts of other things that just we don't see the the forest from the trees. So this is like kind of the irrational exuberance fades yeah, or something. Exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah exactly. Um, all right. Because so that's, it wasn't so irrational. I mean, there is a rational basis for it. And, you know, to, to come to their defense a little bit, I mean, it was a brand new situation. We didn't, mm-hmm. nobody had ever seen that type of money printing because at the time nobody considered it money being printed. You know, the deposit multiplier that had been around forever, but it had never right. expanded in that in that way. We had a brand new kind of central bank that said, "Don't worry about it. We've got this elasticity stuff covered." Yeah. So we sort gotcha. of had the green span put back yeah. in the twenties. We had also a lot of other evolutions, like federal funds and borrowed reserves, and all sorts of other other aspects of the monetary system that were brand new, but were also sort of supposed to be backstops. So it was like we had redundancies mm. built in place that said, if anything goes wrong, we've got all these other ways to mitigate this elasticity, any potential inelasticity. Of course, those are all mistaken assumptions because instead of being backups and in, in, uh, uh, backstops, yeah. they turned into bottlenecks and made it right. worse. <laughs> yeah, uh, interesting. So that's interesting parallels perhaps for today, this false confidence yes. in novelty. No, it's, it's exactly the same parallel as the 90s and two, early 2000s where you had a massive amount of monetary evolution, bank evolutions, you know, combining together. Mm-hmm. You had the idea that the central bank, the Greenspan put was behind everything, as well as, you know, derivatives markets and all sorts of, uh, you know, euro dollar market that we'll talk about, all these other sorts of money markets that had developed that made it seem like if anything goes wrong, it's easy to mitigate because we have all these ways to redistribute funds. We have all this elasticity in the system. Wow. When just like the 20s, it proved to be the same problem, which was all of our assumptions are mistaken. These right. backstops are actually bottlenecks, and it makes the problem that much worse. We were just repeated the, the, 19, the 1920s and, and that, the, the you know, 90s and 2000s. It's so funny that it seems to be this recurrent pattern in human behavior to some extent, because I'm reminded here, and not to jump ahead, but just to mention it, the nifty 50, right? Where people just thought stocks would go up forever. At one, I forget, right. was that in the 60s, maybe? 60s, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess we just get overly confident in something new until it blows up. And then we kind of learn our lesson for some small amount of time until we repeat it again. It's right. You know, it's, you know, if you've heard of Neil Howe's The Fourth Turning, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, the generation that experiences the crisis, they vow never happen again. We learned our lesson. But then the generation that follows, they hear the stories firsthand and they think, well, yeah, we're not going to let it happen. We we know that this stuff happened. And you get to the next generation and it starts to fade. By the time you get to the fourth fourth generation away from the crisis, it's like, we figured everything out. We can just do whatever we want to do. It's, and that's it just repeats again yeah. human beings are just flawed creatures yeah yeah we have this 
uh, I guess, modern hubris in a way, where once yeah. you're four Oops. generations removed, you think you're so much smarter than people four generations ago. We fixed it. Haven't you seen the computers? <laughs> <laughs> I read this book. Yeah, and uh, it's, it really is hubris. I read this book, The Fiat Currency Inflation in France. It goes through the, the Assignat inflation scenario. And it was the same thing. It was the third or fourth generation after their last great inflation. And they just had, you know, they did not heed any of the warnings. They just thought they had it all figured out and they repeated the exact same thing. So what is the old adage? Every generation thinks it invents sex. And that's, you know, <laughs> there's, there's definitely that kind of uh, idea that, Hey, yeah, our grandparents and their parents screwed everything up, but we'll never be that stupid. I mean, right. no, we we got, we got their example. We've learned from everything and it's just, uh, you know, well, history is not linear. It's cyclical because of it. Yeah. Well, it seems like the wheels are really coming off this time as we sit in 2021. Um, okay. So to get back to the arc here, then elasticity, kind of our antidote to uh, monetary deflation or instability, or kind of our weapon to keep things um, moving along. But then it was also, was it instrumental in war as well? Like what, what part of, cause I know you mentioned we went off the gold standard for world war one. So we were increasing elasticity actually to fund world war one as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that was usually where historically speaking before the modern economy showed up in the 19th century, that was where deflation and inelasticity came from because, you know, you get into a war, the government would confiscate as much funds as it possibly could leaving the system dry, right. which wasn't as much of a big deal back then because, you know, uh, in, in a largely subsistence agrarian economy, money isn't necessarily as vital a component as it is in the modern sense. Right. But it was still a deflationary problem and it, it developed into all sorts of bad things. You know, I think uh, the quote from Copernicus applies as well as, you know, Isaac Newton, you know, recognized that, you know, prices and sound money and uh, money availability are all tied together because of these things. And war was historically speaking where, you could see that those relationships come out because of necessity, really. At least right. the governments say it's a necessity. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Okay, so then we, yeah, there is just a a rating of property to, you know, grabbing whatever is not nailed down to go and fund warfare in a way. Yep, exactly. And, and we're going to declare you an enemy of the people and confiscate every liquid asset you have. Right, and then <laughs> really. elasticity would seem to be an expedient. To that then right because then you just just increase the money supply and use it to buy whatever you need versus they actually have to go out and confiscate directly confiscate assets understanding that you create once you create inflationary currency you're kind of spinning your wheels because then you have to create you have to create as much currency as prices go up and you're kind of mm. you know, standing still i mean that was a problem in the american american civil war yep, the, the right, introduction right, right. of greenbacks you know the paper price of goods spiraled out of control which required more greenbacks you know right. and eventually you're kind of making the problem worse but you know you know extenuating circumstances like something like the civil war i, I think that's you know there's justification there for doing anything and everything to try to to uh to, to, yeah. to gain the resources to win the thing that's interesting so there's this very deep connection between warfare and money as well right when every time you go to war it's um you're pouring in all the resources you have and monetary elasticity is kind of a, I guess, just the fastest way to access resources. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. And then the other, I guess the other piece to that is you're not confined. I'm thinking 
thinking of rulers of old, like monarchs, they're kind of confined to their own balance sheet when they go to war, right? They have their, their war chest of gold. Uh, I guess they could clip the coins. Which usually but- were empty. Historically speaking, monarchs were the poorest people on the planet because they really? owed money to everybody. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not easy being king or queen. You know, yeah. you always uh, you always have to have so much patronage. And you know, that's one of the problems, I mean, especially in the English system, where the uh, English developed parliament, for example. Parliament was, hey, you can't just tax us whenever you feel like it. We, we need right. to have some sort of, we need to have some kind of schematic or framework in place so that, you know, you know, the, the king of the monarch just can't just can't confiscate our goods and say, you know, I'm going to tax you to to everything that you have. Yeah. It's yeah. So heavy as the head, as they say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Every time you wanted to go to war, everybody around the everybody underneath you knew what that meant. <laughs> the tax collectors <laughs> were going to show up shortly. Right. Which meant bury all the valuables. <laughs> right. OK, so to that point to some extent so we, we've gone through 1929 things are pretty bad uh executive order 6102 how does that fit into the picture how what do you do once you've once you're captured by deflation that's really what it was and what roosevelt interestingly interestingly enough fdr was a sound money sound money and sound budget guy Mm-hmm. He went. If you go back to the 19, uh, 1932 election, you listen, listen to Roosevelt. He sounds like Ross Perot. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, wait a minute, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. And he said, we, we want to run balanced budget. We want to have a sound dollar. What happened was he started to listen to the economists of the time who said, look, you may want to run a balanced budget, but somebody's got to spend. Somebody's got to do something here because we're in a depression of the kind we've never seen before. Right. What convinced yeah. Roosevelt to act in both the monetary and fiscal realm was the fact that, you know, yes, historically speaking, unsound money leads to bad consequences. But guys, we're in a Great Depression. We're already stuck in a massive hole. So how right. much worse can we actually make it? And no. that's what that's the argument that 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 gave us the New Deal. That gave us the idea we needed to go off the gold standard and try anything and everything, because this was, you know. This was, uh, you know, ex- an existential crisis for the United States as well as many places around the rest of the world. Right, right. That's okay. not a defense of FDR. That's no. simply what he was thinking. Sure, sure, and sure. He, he maintained, you know, in the thirty-six election, for example, he said, "Look, we tried as we needed to try everything because in 1933 the world was ending, and we had yes. to do something." And right. that was the, the idea. Was you know. We never we're not supposed to mess with the gold, uh, the gold contract, it was called. Yeah. Well, the gold contract didn't seem to help us here. So let's try to get let's get rid of the gold contract and see if we can get ourselves out of it. Right, right. OK, so how was that? Was it pitched then as an economic stimulant? It's like we're going to take all the gold and fund the whatever public Again, spending program it was. Absolutely. It was back to elasticity. What they said was that gold was acting as the agent of inelasticity because it was being hoarded by the public. It was being hoarded by bankers. It was being hoarded by the French. It was being hoarded all sorts of places. Yeah. And so it was a huge impediment to elasticity because it was being hoarded. Yeah. Now you make the argument that it was rationally hoarded. Yes, but again, FDR said, I got to do something here. I mean, and let's, you know, FDR kind of made it worse in 1932. That last devastating wave of bank failures in late 32 into 33 mm-hmm. were probably the cause of FDR to begin with because of what he said 
He's not going to, he's not going to, um, he's not going to continue the gold standard. He wouldn't, he wouldn't support the dollar and things like that. Mm. But again, his, his idea was we got to do stuff. We got to, we, this radical kinds call for radical measures. Right. Okay. So whether they were the good, you know, wise measures, that's, there's a debate there. Yeah. Speaking, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to come down on the side of FDR much, but that's what he was thinking. So tell me if I'm uh, stating this correctly, and then I want to ask a question. So executive order 6102 was passed. The gold was effectively confiscated, or I think they mostly confiscated it from the banks, not individuals, but it was uh, confiscated from individuals as well, at least in the letter of the law. And then gold was repriced from around $21 to $35. So that was a haircut of 70-ish percent. Absolutely. Um, so that was effectively a direct confiscation of property. What would have happened, in your opinion, if that had not taken place? Say the property was not as confiscatable, and you know where I'm thinking here. If this had been a Bitcoin, not a gold thing, right? What would have had? What would have the consequences likely have been? I think that they would have tried other different ways to try to create inflationary circumstances. And there probably mm-hmm. were other ways to have done it. Really, the deep revaluation of gold, which was a punch in the face of every American because it revalued. Yeah, I need gold. I'm going to give you paper dollars at this lower price and then I'm going to revalue the dollar, which basically took money away from you. I took mm-hmm. I confiscated your store of value wealth. Yeah. You know, the transaction that you traded your labor or your business for previously expecting it to be worth this. And now it's worth right. a hell of a lot less. Yeah. The idea, though, was going back to what we talked about before. How do we get gold circulating throughout the economy and circulating throughout the global economy? Mm. So if we reprice gold into a, a we pay more paper dollars for gold, the idea is that gold will flow into the United States, which will then you know, reflood the banking system with liquid money. And then for the banking system can get itself up off the ground and start doing the things we need the banking system to do, which Mm. by the way, is what happened because gold started to flow inside into the United States by the bushel full. Mm. In fact, by 1936 and 1937, the BIS was complaining that here we have too much gold in the United States. It's inflationary Mm. currency. Mm. Didn't turn out to be that way, but that's exactly what did happen. Now, were there other ways to have found, to have combated the depre- deflationary depression without devaluing the dollar? I think there probably were. Right. Among the others was just to stabilize the banking system and create elasticity through other means, including the Federal Reserve actually doing its damn job, which, <laughs> I mean, that was Mon- Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz's critique in, in you know, their book of monetary history was essentially that as this deflationary currency wave convertibility and all that stuff started to wash over the banking system in 1929, 1930, the Federal Reserve stood stood on its hands and said, there's no demand for money. So why would we rediscount bills and things? Mm. And that was, you know, the Fed was supposed to supply elasticity when they were reading the situation as already elastic. So the Fed screwed up really big in the early 1930s. And then it was Roosevelt who thought, well, I can't depend on these idiots. So I'm going to have to do something myself to try to get us out of it. And um, it's arguable whether or not that was the best way to do things. <laughs> right, 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 right. Okay. Because, you know, in my opinion, the Great Depression didn't end until after World War II. So nothing that the Roosevelt actually did ended the Depression because you look at any number of economic statistics and even Roosevelt's own admission, we never really recovered. 
Now things right. were moving forward. We had some reflationary currency, but you know, 1936 and 1937 that disrupted it. And by the end of the decade, you know, employment levels and things like that were less than they had been in 1929. So by no means was there any recovery in the 1930s. And I think it was because these radical ideas were probably not the best choices to have made. But I can understand why they were making them. Yeah. Yeah. Desperate times, desperate measures yeah. kind of thing. Right. Yeah. That's interesting because I think uh, one of the pieces you wrote, you actually said that Jerome Powell today admits that depression era error of central banking. Right. They said, I think Milton Freeman maybe yep. commented and said, hey, clearly the Fed did not act when it should have acted. Ben Bernanke in 2002 at Milton Friedman's 90th birthday stood in front of Friedman and said, as a member of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke said to Friedman, yes, we did it. We won't do it again. And then five wow. years later, they did it again. <laughs> so it irony of, you know, famous last words. Incredible. <laughs> so funny. Okay. So, all right, then we're going through the 30s. Do we then go, and there's gold flowing into the U.S. as a result of this repricing does this then lead us straight into World War II? Yeah, because you know, as much as there was reflationary recovery-like tendencies in the U.S. and around the rest of the world, it was not a full and complete recovery, which left the you know obviously the world susceptible to Nazism and fascism mm. and every other ism you can possibly think of. Because you know, year after year of some really tough economic environments, people quite naturally flow toward extremes right? because people at extremes claim to have all the answers to all the world's problems. Right. Whereas people in charge like FDR and others would say, well, we're fixing it. And yes. you, I can't, you keep telling me you're fixing it. You're doing all this radical stuff, but I don't really see this. Right. So I'm going to, I'm going to gravitate toward one pole or the other. And that's, that's really what left the world exposed to world war II was the fact that the great depression may have begun in 1929, but it did not end before world war II started. Gotcha. So yeah, when when things are bad, people are more likely to run into the arms of authoritarians who are just the strong man, right? Just promising to make change or have the answers. Or even just somebody who says, I know what's wrong and I can fix it. Whether they yeah. know what's wrong and can fix it or not, that's a very comforting message. And again, we're talking about parallels between then and now. Right. What has happened yes. around the world over the last 10 years is exactly the same thing. Yes. People are not getting answers. And they're turning to more extremes, whether it's right wing or left wing or whatever you want to call it. Right. It's definitely extremism is on the rise because people in authority are saying, we've got this covered. Everything's fine. What are you talking about? Yeah. Interesting. OK, so then um, then. OK, so the gold is flowing. Uh, actually, I, I think Hitler, too, he was born out of the ashes of a hyperinflation. Right. So this was, was Weimar Republic. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's the early 20s. Early 20s. Okay. So then economic disaster in Germany. And then a guy rises up and says he's going to fix things, which here's the other. This is kind of a pernicious problem because those authoritarian measures are very effective in the short they can run. can be. Right? <laughs> they you know? can be. Yes, absolutely. It's a great enticement an inducement to get people to move and act in accordance with this one singular plan of action to mobilize capital and labor quickly. The problem, so it's great speed initially, but it doesn't persist over time well because the, you know, absolute power issue. Well, uh, that, and the, you know, the information issue, when you're centralizing decision-making, right. you don't have enough, you don't have a broad, a broad enough base of information flow that you can actually make wise and, and, and effective decisions. That's right. And, and it's really, you know, 
exactly. You don't, no. you don't, you, I'm in charge. I don't, I can ignore whatever I want to ignore. There's no, there's no central governing feature. I can just arbitrarily decide this is what I'm going to do. And I do, I act as an authoritarian on political, not economic expedience, right? I don't care about the economy. I just care about maintaining my own power structure, which is an an economically inefficient way of doing things. And it kind of makes things worse, (laughs) but still once people are captured in that mindset, it becomes cult-like and religious-like and, they don't care about effective results. They, they care about whether or not they feel like they're being taken care of. Understood. Okay. So then, and again, you know, just to, this getting back to why elasticity, this is why, because yeah. once that elasticity breaks down and you get into this deflationary trap, it leads to all sorts of all these other problems that are so intense and so difficult. It's hard to get out of it. Right. The answer is we need to avoid ever getting into the deflationary trap to begin with. It's such a pernicious problem, though, because then doesn't the inflation lead to its own trap, typically at some point? Assuming you get to the inflation. It's not one or the other. There's no binary construction here. The, you know, we're shooting for the middle ground, mm. which by and large is where, where most systems tend to go when they're efficiently run. Interesting. Okay. All right. So the gold flows. Uh, my understanding is that when Hitler would invade a country, like I think when he invaded Poland, his first order of business, once he's conquered Poland, is to go to their central bank and raid their gold. How much influence did the flows of gold have on the geopolitics of World War II? Oh, it's huge. And I mean, that was the political question that started back in the, the late 1920s, which was that gold was not equitably distributed around the world. In fact, the the British were always chronically short of it. Obviously, the Germans were in the 20s because of uh, the Versailles Treaty and the fact that the Allies demanded repayment war reparations in gold. So Germany, I mean, which led to the Weimar hyperinflation, they never really solved that problem, Uh, especially in the British after 1925 when Churchill demanded they go back on the war standard at the pre-war price, which caused all sorts of problems there. So even before you get to the Great Depression, long before you get to World War II, you have gold that is pooled up essentially in the United States and France, right. which you could argue is probably the worst places to have gold hoarded, especially yeah. the French. Sorry to, any, any, sorry to anybody in France. But, uh, so you have unequitable distribution of gold before we get to the Depression, and then it gets worse because of the U.S. dollar devaluation, and a lot of gold just ends up in the United States' hands anyway. Mm-hmm. The United States sort of repatriated that gold with the beginnings of a paper currency standard along the lines of what the British pound, the British pound block had been doing up until that point. Right. So there's there's sort of the the first rumblings of what would become the Bretton Woods standard in the in the Great Depression, World War II era. So I have this kind of a uh, I don't know I guess it's a theory that the 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 phrase I put around it is that money is the means and ends of all warfare. So clearly money is necessary to fund warfare, and I think in most cases it tends to be the the ends as well. The country is kind of invading a country to, you know, uh, commandeer their tax base or confiscate their gold, whatever it may be. Um, do you think that's accurate here? Like, were were we fighting no. over the gold in this time? I don't think that's accurate. I think you're. I think it's on the right track, but it's not exactly what the aims are because it goes back to what we talked about before. What is wealth? Mm. Wealth is not money. 
So mm. what was Hitler actually looking for? Yes, he was looking for Lebensraum and room to expand, but he was also looking to confiscate productive economic capacities that weren't just gold. Mm. You know, there was a lot of good businesses in the Slavic countries like Czechoslovakia mm. or Austria. Austria was definitely a commerce rich environment. It wasn't necessarily Austrian gold. It was Austrian businesses, Austrian mm. trade capacities. Gotcha. Let's take those. Let's take real economic wealth because they weren't going to defend themselves. But that's really, I mean, that's the real secret to economic growth and success. It's not, it's not necessarily gold, but let's take yeah. the productive capacities. Let's take gotcha. the businesses that are working and, and put them under our framework that all flows up and all flows up into our what is essentially a Ponzi scheme anyway. Yeah. Let's do that. Gotcha. Okay. So even on a hypothetical Bitcoin standard back then, there still would have been massive incentive to commandeer the productive enterprises. I think so. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Makes Again, sense. the flaw in human character. <laughs> yeah. Right. The dark side of human beings. Just a bunch of violent apes that we are. Um, okay. So then as a result of this process, you make the point that most of the gold pooled in the U S and France uh, eventually the allies prevail. Uh, my understanding is that now because the, the U S is holding most of the world's gold, it has a significant leverage in, in Bretton woods. Uh, could you, could you speak to that? that plus, you know, and, the fact that there was probably, you know, 12 million soldiers and aircraft carriers and all sorts of other stuff spaced all over the world, right. you know, that, that yeah. gave the Americans quite a bit of leverage too. Yeah. Um, but, you know, why didn't the Soviets have much more leverage than the Americans did? And that's that's another question that gets you know along to the politics of Bretton Woods exchange or Bretton mm -hmm. Woods and the exchange gold exchange standard that came out of it. But, yeah, the the essential problem facing, uh, you know, John Maynard Keynes and Harry Dexter White at Bretton Woods in 44 was we've got gold in the U.S., we had gold in France, but a lot of it was, you know, hidden away because they wanted to keep it out of German hands. Some yeah. of it ended up in Britain. Some of it ended up who knows where, Switzerland, yeah. wherever else. How do we operate a global monetary standard where gold is not evenly distributed? And the answer mm. was, well, let's have a paper currency standard. Let's have the US dollar be the denomination and paper currency can flow, but we'll tie it to gold and the, these, this massive national gold reserve that the Americans have so it can be like gold is flowing because the US did not want to give up the gold reserves but yet realize that we have to do something. We have to have a monetary standard that works uh, throughout the rest of the world. If we're not going to give up the gold, then why not circulate our paper currency tied right. to gold? Okay. It seemed like a good idea. Uh, but even John Maynard Keynes said, you know, this is probably not going to work. We need probably an international currency because as Robert Triffin identified right. years later, there's this natural there's natural contradiction between an international uh, currency system being run by a national currency tied to national reserves. That's never going to work. And yep. it didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so was the infamous exorbitant privilege, was this a premeditated um, aspect of Bretton Woods? Was the U S trying to secure this uh, advantage for itself? In some ways. Yeah. But a lot of ways it was just, again, expedience. It's how do we solve problems that are kind of intractable? How do we do that within the parameters of 1944, for example? Mm -hmm. and one of the parameters that, that actually came back to bite them in the ass, so to speak, was neither Keynes nor De Harry Dexter White nor the, the Soviet delegation or any of the other delegations foresaw 
the post-war economy for what it came to be, mm. which was a highly globalized trade-centered economy that linked together a lot of a lot of com, a lot of uh, countries and economies that previously had been completely totally separated. Mm. And the only way that could happen is if you have a true international reserve currency system. Mm. So there was always, you know, we talked about before demand for currency versus supply. Well, the demand for currency went way, way, way up after the World War II yeah. for legitimate economic reasons. First of all, rebuilding Europe and Japan. Yeah. But secondly, economic growth and globalization, this first real wave of modern globalization that's, that started out in the late 40s and early 50s, demanded a hell of a lot of U.S. dollar currency resources to get it done. Right. And that was always that natural tension between the needs for global currency and the fact that it was backed by only American reserves of gold. I find it kind of ironic that we have elasticity is such a vital instrument to both warfare and rebuilding. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, it's, well, then the question is, you know, I think the issue with most people have with elasticity is that it tends to go too far at times, right? That's when you get into speculative bubbles and things yeah. like that. And the answer, you know, most people say, well, if we get into a speculative bu bubble, then the answer is just to slam the damn thing shut and go back all the way in the other direction. Mm. The pendulum must swing to the point where we have no elasticity. Mm. And I think that's a mistake. And as much as it is a mistake when you, when you argue for elasticity, a lot of people, especially central bankers, will argue that there's never too much elasticity. Mm. And I think that's, that's making the wrong mistake in the other direction. We identify that elasticity is sort of a it's sort of a unicorn, <laughs> let's put it yeah. that way, where it's, it's very hard to identify and it's very hard to contain. But what is what is our priorities here? Yeah. And I think the priorities, especially in the early post-war era, were we need currency. Otherwise, if we don't rebuild Europe, what's going to happen? We'll just it'll be World War Three because right. that won't be a good situation. So we and it, it, by the I mean, Globalization in the 50s and 60s was a very good thing. It met economic growth and prosperity through much of the rest of the world. And if it required a, a good bit of currency to, to accomplish, then that was probably a good thing too. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I appreciate the nuance you're bringing to this. Um, that does seem a bit asinine, though. You can never have too much elasticity. I mean, isn't that what hyperinflation is? It's like, too, oh, yes, absolutely. Too but much that, you know, the argument. The argument that counter the central bankers and Keynesian economists would say mm -hmm. is that no, those things don't really happen, especially with a modern central bank model. And it is it's completely stupid. It's yeah. you know, it's 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 really you're you're really playing with fire here because um first of all, you don't really know much about the currency system to begin with. And if you don't know much about the currency system, you don't know where the limits are. Right, right, if right. You don't know if you don't even believe there are limits, then you're, You're going to go past with them. fire. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Okay. So then we have Bretton Woods, uh, the dollars pegged to gold, everything else is pegged to the dollar. Um, but we've also now triggered Triffin's. Yeah. I guess this is technically a trilemma, but we call, often call it a dilemma, but it's, there's three aspects to it, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think he called it a paradox and I think that was probably oh, paradox. A okay. Yeah. But it, Triffin's dilemma, Triffin's paradox, yeah. same thing, which is essentially that the Bretton Woods system under did not appreciate and understated all of these factors so that really it didn't last very long. Right. Uh, if you think about it, the gold started to flow outside of the United States in the late 50s and actually before that, but in really serious fashion in 58 and 59 and 60, which led to the creation of the London gold pool in November 1961, which was essentially a default on the Bretton Woods arrangement, which it basically yeah. said, 
there's so much currency outside the United States. It's some, it's too much of it is, is, is finding, you know, it's being converted into, uh, especially through France, too much of it is being converted into U.S. gold reserves and golds are starting to flow outside the U.S., which means we now have less and less backing to this global reserve currency and it just becomes a self-feeding phenomenon. Gotcha. But the problem was, and where I get into all this, is that nobody seemed to understand where this currency outside the United States was actually coming from. Mm. And it's not where most people think. And, the, and the, contemporarily, authorities thought it was, you know, it's just simple balance of payments issue. Yeah. You know, we started we started importing more than we exported, which meant we were exporting dollars around the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. That wasn't really the case. We have this euro dollar system that started to bring spring up sometime in the 50s. And they have, there's even references to something called a continental dollar earlier in the 50s. Mm-hmm. So there was already these dollar supplies outside the U.S. in the 1950s as the Breton, you know, as this demand for global reserve went up, as this tension, natural tension that Robert Triffin identified started to become a problem. There was this euro dollar system already starting to grease the wheels in other other ways. Gotcha. Okay, so a couple of things. One, could you please give my audience an explanation of Triffin's paradox in a nutshell. And then two, uh, I guess, so we have the dollar, the dollar is a derivative of gold at this point. And now what we start to see emerge outside of the U S is a derivative system of the dollar, which we're calling <laughs> yeah, the no, Euro it's dollar. Great, system. Right? It's great. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so a derivative squared, if you will. Yep, um, it's currency squared, right? <laughs> it's yeah. actually currency cubed because we're we're two steps removed from actual money. Right. And that's, that's right. Yeah. All right. So yeah, okay. Triffin's dilemma is essentially what you need currency, you need a national, you need an international reserve currency. Now, why do you need an international reserve currency? Is because of what we said. It's the currency that intermediates between different countries and different systems that they're mm-hmm. able to exchange with each other without having to do so directly in their own currency or their own ways, because you know, if you're importing goods in Japan from Sweden, yeah. you know, you don't have any kroner. It's a you're not going to get standard, any right? Yes. So yeah. the, it's, it's much easier to intermediate through a third currency that's available in both Japan and Sweden, and that's right. the U.S. dollar. Yeah. But in order for that to work, you have to have dollars available and plentiful everywhere. Mm-hmm. So that's where elasticity really becomes important. So you have to have dollars available for everywhere, but under the Bretton Woods system, more that we have dollars available for everywhere, the more likely those some of those dollars are going to be repatriated in the United States through France and converted into U.S. gold reserves. Mm-hmm. So the French started taking gold outside the United States, redeeming the currency for gold, which then drained the U.S. reserves, supposedly backing this international standard, which mm-hmm. then endangered the international standard, which causes all sorts of problems. Right. So what Robert Triffin said was, you can't have a national currency backed by national reserves be an international currency. Got it. Okay. So there's there's three legs to it, right? You pick two of three. Is it global reserve currency, independent monetary policy, and balance of payments? Are those the three? Yeah, fixed exchange. Fixed exchange. Okay. That's the idea. That was the idea. Fixed exchange. Yeah. That would that would allow the system to moderate imbalances, especially merchandise balance of payments and balances and things like that. Because quite naturally, no, we're not talking about the U.S. dollar anymore, but say you know the Italian uh, lira. Yeah, the Italians, you know, they they came out of World War II in really rough shape, and they ran sore, you know, balance of payments deficits for a very long time. Yeah, and what ended up happening was rather than 
the Bretton Woods system forcing the Italians to come up you know, and pay up for their, their accumulated deficits and their accumulated currency deficits, they were intermediating through the euro dollar system, borrowing in euro dollars to offset their balance of payments issue. So in all, you know, we're talking about the early 1960s. Yeah. The Eurodollar system is already subverting the Bretton Woods system and right. allowing another level of intermediation between national systems. So is this kind of, I mean, one of the things that dawned on me listening to the Eurodollar uh, University series, it seems like it's kind of like market forces working around the, the legislated Bretton Woods standard. Is that sort of what is happening here? Yeah. And there was all sorts of regulatory creaks and cracks and crevices that, that started. I mean, Regulation Q was a big one. Mm-hmm. Regulation Q was a depression era regulation, which the American government said, we don't want banks paying more than what, what we say for a deposit. Mm-hmm. And it was a really ridiculous, stupid idea, but you know, whatever, that was the regulation that banks could not pay more for deposits. Well, you go outside the United States into this offshore US dollar world, there's no regulation, yeah, which means that we can right. pay whatever we want for deposits. Right. And so there was always that the, the, this interest rate differential that favored this offshore system to begin mm-hmm. with, which meant that you know supplies of dollars could be created outside the United States because there was this regulatory dark space. Right. Interesting. Let's, you know, let's be clear here. When we're talking about euro dollar, the term euro dollar means something very specific. It doesn't have anything to do with the European common currency, which didn't come about until the late 1990s. Mm-hmm. The term euro simply means offshore, right? Offshore of the U.S. It's not just offshore of the U.S. It's offshore of everywhere. Yeah. And that's, you know, you get banks in the Cayman Islands. You go to the Cayman Islands, as my podcast co-host Emil Kalinowski is in the Cayman Islands. There are no banks there. It's, they're just brass plates. They're just offices with lawyers and accountants. <laughs> it's, you can set up a quote unquote bank in these offshore places like the Cayman Islands or London or Montreal or any of these other places that allow banks basically to be unregulated so long as they're doing business with people outside of those countries. Mm. It was really the secret behind the Eurodollar system's early days was that in London, as the pound system started to fall apart and the British economy started to really fall apart, they wanted to continue their banking dominance that, you know, the European or the, the English had been dominant in banking since, you know, the 18th century. And the only way they could do it was if they Got this captured some part of this growing U.S. dollar-centered system. Mm. So they said, if you set up if you set up a bank in the city of London, the city of London, which is a special part of London, if you set a bank there, we won't regulate you as long as you don't do any business with people inside the inside the UK. So as long wow. as you're doing business with people around the world, we don't give a shit what you do. Wow. And that's where really the the real basis of the euro dollar system started from these regulatory these offshore regulatory blank spots where banks could do whatever they needed to do. And to your, your, your the point you're making, that allowed banks, the good side of this, that allowed the banking system to essentially very neatly and elegantly solve Triffin's dilemma. Right. Because it was no longer a national currency tied to national reserves. It's a derivative of a derivative yeah, currency right. that's tied only to the bank, the capacities of banking, which going back to something else we talked about earlier before, puts banks in a really good spot, which eventually they could really take advantage of because now they're the ones printing the currency. Right. They're the ones in yes. charge of monetary flow and redistribution, which believe me, they loved it. In fact, you know, there's a guy by the name of Paul Einzig, who was a, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s, he was a well-known economist and journalist and um, did all these things. And he said, look, 
I stumbled upon the euro dollar system in the late 50s. And the bankers I talked to begged me not to write about it right. because they were making so much money. Nobody knew what they were doing and all this stuff. They didn't want anybody to know what was going on. And that was sort of the kind of the early history of the system was that it grew and grew and grew, solved this problem elegantly, yeah. but also allowed banks to a, a real big leg up into this growing international system. Fascinating. Yeah. So I think you said in one of your pieces that the central bank model was kind of forcefully decentralized in a way through the emergence of the euro dollar system, taking us from a quote unquote lender of last resort to a quote unquote market of last resort. So, but it's all very opaque, right? We don't even, I, I think even today, we don't really have, we have no ideas idea. about no maybe idea. how big it is, but we don't <laughs> no. really know. Um, and that's part of, you know, that's part of the problem too, is that look, central banks essentially took the position that's called benign neglect. Look, mm. the, the bread and wine system is falling apart. We don't really know how to solve it. There's no mm. really, there's no real pathway to solve it. But the banking system is doing it for us. So why don't we just look the other way and let the banks solve it for us? And we plausible deniability. We don't know what's going on out there. There's a bunch yeah. of it, you know, it's banks in London. That's not our problem. Right. You know, right, and so right. that's where it all began, where when you took they took their eyes off the monetary ball. In a lot of ways, they were forced to because banks, once they were set free to do all this stuff, they started evolving in all sorts of these monetary right. modern monetary formats that central bankers and economists couldn't even keep up with. Yeah. So by the early 70s, they're like, we don't even know how to do money anymore. We can't. So let's try to do something else. Let's change the entire model of central banking, which is what happened. That's so interesting. Yeah. So this, you know, formerly contained ecosystem just kind of spilled out of its container. And the, the yep. central bankers had no choice other than to let it do its thing because they couldn't control um they couldn't keep it together without it, right? It was solving Triven's dilemma for them. Exactly. And of course, that was that was the good aspect of it. Yeah. The bad aspect of it is when you, you know, again, as we talked about elasticity run amok. Right. That was right, the right. great inflation. right? Yes. And then, then you had deflate. And, you know, they were a lot of uh, some people who were aware of this, people like Robert Rusa and Robert Solomon, who's a guy I really expect at the time, kept saying, look, this euro dollar thing is going to come back to bite us. We need mm. to we need to understand it. And central bankers, especially in the 70s, were like, not our plate. It's not our. It's not our job. Wow. This is banks in London. This is banks in the Caymans. We're a domestic bank regulator. Not even a money regulator. We're a domestic bank regulator. We wow. don't do money anymore. So whatever they're doing in London, even though it's called U.S. dollars, yeah, not our job. So it was nobody's job, and therefore this nope. thing got to grow. The, yeah, the, the Bank of England and the, and the regulators in England were saying that's not our job either because yep. we let this bank, we let these banks set up. They're doing, they're not doing anything with local customers. They're not doing anything with the UK citizens. So, yeah, they're operating in London, but all their business is outside. So wow. it's not our job either. <laughs> so, so interesting. Nobody's job. And that's why the, the term euro dollar offshore means literally offshore from everywhere. 